Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague. Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change. And a very big warm welcome to Rabbi Phyllis Berman and Rabbi Dr. Arthur Waskow, who are friends and colleagues and teachers. Um, and I want to say to both of you, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and happy Mother's Day. Um, and, and, and first of all, just like briefly, like, like, like how you, and you did a, you did a book called, uh, titled from both Kahalat and Pete Seeger, like for everything there is a time and a season. Yes. And so I want to say, I want to well, say. The title, the title is only sort of from, uh, it's from, it's from Torah, right? It's from Ecclesiastes. Yes, 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 from Kahalat and from Pete Seeker. But I was going to right. say, how are you and where are you? And, and, and maybe just even as an opening thing, what if at all is like, what are you enjoying about this crazy, difficult moment? So, do you want to start? Yes, I will. Um, first of all, I guess many of us are having the same experience. The spring has been magnificent, more magnificent than I ever remember seeing before. It's as though the trees and the bushes and the flowers and the birds and the wild animals, a fox in Philadelphia in my backyard, uh, have taken a breath, a deep breath, and said, finally, those humans have gotten out of our way. We can burst forward. And as Arthur was saying before about the azaleas, they seem to have lasted longer than we have ever experienced before. And the colors are so vibrant. It is so beautiful outside. And it gives you a lot of pause about what we've done to interrupt either the seeing of that or maybe even allowing of that to happen. So that's one thing. So we're, I'm doing beautifully walking outside with my mask on, just appreciating and being so awed by what I'm seeing and feeling out there. The other thing I wanted to say is, in the absence of Arthur's being, I hope this is okay to say, Arthur, in the absence of Arthur's being able to go to physical therapy, uh, he said he would do his exercises if I would read to him each morning Aww. for an hour. So we have done this at other times in our lives. We have read to one another, um, which is a wonderful experience, but we are just in love with the idea of what happens when we dedicate that time, not only to reading a book, but the conversations that the reading of now book two um, spurs us onto. So these are some of the wonderful parts of this experience. And, 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 and Arthur, you must tell us what's good about this too, but then one of you, and maybe Phyllis, you have to tell us like what you're reading, because we want to know. We'll do that. Yeah, well, we're, we have read, we are in the middle of the second book of Philip Roth's that we've been reading. The first one, a difficult book, and 
was uh, the plot against America, uh, which is his nightmarish novel of the possibility that uh, Lindbergh defeated FDR in 1940 and had a pro-Nazi presidency and everything that that meant. And the most interesting, I read it maybe 20 years ago. And uh, interestingly, hearing it read out loud made it a really different book. I realized that the real part of the book is what big, big, big global events do to a family. Hmm. Uh, It's the family that's the heart of it. And how the family, a Jewish family, Philip, I mean, Philip Roth is the hero of the book, growing up in Newark. Uh, He was seven years old in 1940 when he imagines Lindbergh winning the presidency, just like me, I was seven years old in 1940. My first political memory is a gigantic sign saying no third term uh, against FDR because he, the whole tradition was there was no such thing as a third term for a president. And his early memory, he's making up early memories of Lindbergh's presidency. I, I was going to say, turned, what? No, sorry, go on. Then it turns kind of weird and un, unfictive, uncreative, un, uh, whatever, and didn't feel like a rich novel, the second half or last third. And then we read this book, Operation Shylock, which is Philip Roth, again, is the hero. He goes to Israel and he is haunted by somebody in Israel who is claiming to be him and who is peddling a whole notion that of diasporaism, that all the Ashkenazic Jews in Israel should go back to Europe, that Europe is hungry to meet its Jews and is sorrowful about the way they were treated and that the only way to save uh, Israel and the Jews from another Holocaust is for all the Ashkenazic Jews to go back and the Eastern and um, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews who grew up in Arab countries, they should stay. It's an Arab Jewish country, a Jewish Arab country. So this, so that is a real novel. It's a little crazy because he's facing being himself and somebody else at the same time. And the, um, the prescript to the novel is a quotation from Torah in Hebrew and in English. And Jacob stayed alone and wrestled with a man. And it's clear that he's, this whole novel is about Philip Roth wrestling with himself. Um, I I have a couple of things I want to say, but one thing is very strange. I wasn't a huge Philip Roth person, but I always wanted a a wooden table. And there was a story in the New York Times that they were auctioning off Philip Roth's possessions. And like one of these classic things, I went down the rabbit hole and there was like a really nice wooden desk there. I've never bid for anything in an auction ever. And, and you could like put in a bid 
So I like bid like $1,100. I didn't think that I was going to get it, but I would be perfectly willing to spend $1,100 for like a wooden desk that would, uh, you know, that would last for a long time. I didn't, I had a, basically an Ikea desk, which I always was like a bit irritated by. And then I went online after Shabbat and it turned out I bought it. <laughs> Nice. I don't know what to make of that. It's a very strange thing. <laughs> Arthur, I, I, Phyllis, both of you, I want to ask you one thing that actually comes out of that. There's one of the things that I, I it, it's clear that, clear, there are all sorts of things that conceivably could happen or should happen in the world. But even before we get to that, one of the questions is like, how the world is going to be different. And I was talking to my sister yesterday. My, my sister has um, now three 20-something kids. And there's huge data nowadays that the economy that you enter has long-run impacts on like, how much money that you earn. And that, and that sort of graduating college into a weak economy can have very long-run negative impacts. Right. And... That's one jigsaw piece, but a second jigsaw piece is like, how do you teach five and six-year-olds that it's not safe to touch other people and to hug them and then turn around a year later and encourage them to hug other people? And, and I feel that in all sorts of ways, small and large, the, 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 that's why the, your point that the, the plot against America in, in the hearing of it ends up being partly not just about a dystopian image over here, but how the big events affect people. And, I'm, and, and I, one other thing that I also wanted to say, people know you both as, as rabbis and teachers, but Phyllis, you for a very long time actually communicated to New York to teach English to first-generation immigrants. And, and, and the question of like, for the people who you personally taught and as it were their descendants, like how, in what, in what different ways is this inflecting things and changing things? Are, are any of them for good or the things that we should be particularly cautious about? Thoughts and comments? So I'm going to, I guess I'll start. Um, Nigel, it's very interesting to me. I'm now four years away from my school in New York. The school is still happening. I think it's still at uh, B'nai Jeshurun's building. Um, and one of the teachers has been telling me that they're teaching online now, which is surprising to me. I wouldn't have thought all of the students had internet capacity. But the world for our students and for me changed a lot, not with this plague, but with 9-11, with when the impenetrability of the United States dissolved in my mind and in their minds. They had come here to be safe and it was not safe. And they felt it directly. Many of them lived in neighborhoods um, where it was most unsafe. And for days afterwards, many of them were afraid to be out, especially the Arab speaking students, um, some of whom never came back after that experience, which we didn't know what that meant. We couldn't reach them. About this, I'm not sure what the impact is on those students, but the question really for me that's been arising throughout this is beyond the first days and even weeks 
when people like me and probably all the rest of us were getting accustomed to a new reality and we're a little bit at sea with this reality. How do I do these things that I used to do so easily? For me, technologically, it was very hard. I didn't yet have a Zoom account. I'm now doing all of my spiritual direction on Zoom, which meant I had to learn a lot and found that I was very hesitant to try to learn these new skills I didn't have. Things were much more complex. Getting food was much more complex than running to the co-op or going and getting something in the middle of the week that I hadn't ordered on the right day. But after I began to live in this new rhythm, there are so many things I'm finding that are wonderful about this rhythm. And that's really the question that I've been asking myself and talking with other people about. What do you want to carry out into the world with you at the moments that we're coming back out into the world? And I know that that may be different times for some of us, that's scary in itself. For many of us who are older, even though our states or our cities may open up, we may not be able to because we still are in danger and are going to be until there's a vaccine that can give us the same kind of uh, immunity as it has to the childhood diseases that we have each been in contact with. So a couple of weeks ago at, uh, on Shabbat, when we were having our Torah study on Zoom, we began to think about what should be a ritual for Jews when mm -hmm. the world opens up? This is no small thing. And it seems to me that part of the ritual has to be a, a hand washing where somebody else dries our hands, touches us physically, because that really symbolizes so much of what we haven't been able to do. But the second thing that I think is, a, is really important is that we make a vow that's a public vow, not just one in our mind, one, something in our minds. What is it we've recognized that's holy in this experience of the shut-in, the sheltering, that we want to hold on to in coming out? and that we need to be witnessed by other people in making that vow. And of course, then ending with the Shehech that is a restart for us, for a world that comes out of this new learning that we want to manifest so that we can live together in a new way with one another, with the earth, with the animals. Uh, and all of that is very much what I want to see and bring into the world. It's so beautiful that you said that. And Arthur, I want to ask you the equivalent question, but it is so fascinating. One of the things that's weird about this is that on the one hand, people have had radically different experiences, right? People have like lost members of their family or been incredibly sick or not. Right. People have lost their jobs or not. People have been stranded behind borders that closed or not. So there are many things, in fact, that one cannot generalize. And yet there are also like common things that we're going through, coping with Zoom, where does the food come from, getting masks, all that kind of stuff. And I've really felt in this last week or 10 days in particular, I have been more aware of and have had more conversations about things in this that actually are good, that I do want to hold on to. And I'm, I've been very, for us, we live right near Central Park, and I'm like, I've never in my life basically been in Central Park every day 
through the springtime. I'm too, quote unquote, I'm too busy, I'm traveling, I'm blah, blah, blah. I never, I'm like, how could I have lived here and not seen the trees actually grow? Yeah. Um, Arthur, what has it been for you? What's, what do we want to take out of this that we want to remember or hold on to for good? Well, one thing is, Phyllis and I, for these four weeks, five weeks, have actually had a much more open, close relationship even than before. Um, neither of us needing to race out to do something. Uh, uh, and the reading aloud, as Philip mentioned, is not only reading Roth aloud, is reading each other aloud too. As we, it's like uh, rabbis reading Talmud together where you don't just read it, you talk about it, you respond to it. So that's one thing. And we could have figured out ways to do that before, but this forced us to. Another thing, surprising, we could have always had dinner with somebody in Toronto. Like, I mean, not always, but for the last five years anyway, had dinner with somebody in Toronto with uh, Zoom, and it never even occurred to us. And now we've been doing that with people who live far away, uh, and we can spend an evening having dinner and talking together. So that's amazing. And it's like, it took us being hit upside the head with a two by four to do it, when even we could have been doing it. Um, and I think there are several things about this that really uh, in the big world also seem to me extraordinary. Um, one is Howard Zinn, Allah Shalom, uh, may, may his, memory, his memory is a blessing, told me once in the middle of the Vietnam War, he told me that most of us walk around in the society we live in in the dark. We may bump into things and they may hurt us, but we can't see them and we can't understand them. And so we just keep walking around in the dark. He said, every once, maybe once a generation, there's a lightning flash that lights up what reality is. And he said the war had become a lightning flash like that, lighting up all sorts of aspects of American society that had always been there but we didn't pay attention. So I think the virus has been a lightning flash. I mean, for instance, the racial disparities. Blacks knew that, but most American whites did not and did not pay attention. And now it's so much clearer in the lightning flash. And Zinn said that the responsibility of people who want to make a decent society is since the lightning flash only is a flash to see and to remember and to remind people what we saw in the lightning flash to be really clear about it. So I not only agree with that, but I want to take it in a different direction. I want to say that as you said that, one of the crazy lightning flashes, it was very weird for me to say it like this, but one of the crazy lightning flashes is the absolute clarity that the federal government can print dollars and the states and cities can't. And that 
If the federal government can print $2 trillion, by the way, basically in a good way, fundamentally, to bail people out, which effectively means providing employment and stuff, then all of the things, the notion of like actually printing money in order to like provide healthcare for everybody in this country for 10 years, or to fix all of the hospitals, or to do all sort next next week in this series, I'm going to be chatting with Andy Cohen, uh, Andy Cohen, Andy Stern, who led SEIU for many years, but then as it happens, did a book on universal basic income, and and it's like it's not only a lightning flash that like, well, if it's possible in an emergency, like 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 why can this not happen post the emergency? But also, this specific point, as well as many things going on right now that are outrageous, it is incredibly outrageous to me. I believe it's good that money has been given to small businesses and nonprofits and so on and so on. It's outrageous that money hasn't been given to states and cities, which are the enterprises that fundamentally provide local services. If you gave $1,000 per person to every state and every city, all sorts of things would happen. I don't know what's going on in Philly, but in New York, the city is in the process of making all sorts of huge cuts because New right. York here too, and it's not being bailed out. Right. So, so it depends yeah. who's in charge of giving out that money as to who gets it, right? Uh, and it has not gone to states and cities, which are at least partly run by democratic process and elections. It's gone to people who don't operate by elections at all, but um, in which the dollar is the vote. And if you have a lot of them, you get a lot more votes. Uh, so, that's, so that's one lightning flash that is much clearer now than it was before. It was true before, but we can see it clearer. The so other thing another lightning flash is, um, this is probably the first time in my lifetime that I have seen the entire world in the same situation. The entire world, no place in the world, just about, has not been touched by this virus. So if that is so, this is hardly the time for us to be isolationists as a country. With all of the things that other countries have learned success successfully, uh, Korea, maybe China, about test, tests that can be used, procedures that have made their societies function at some level, both economically and healthily. We have not reached out. Our government has been unwilling to learn anything that could have helped it in making decisions and in, in time for us to have been spared the horror that has happened in New York City and so many other places around the country. But New York City is unbelievable in how many people have been affected and killed. So, you both a very deep question that's really been troubling me and I really, uh, I don't know how to, how, I don't know even what to say about this, but I don't, I really, 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 I want to ask this at a very deep level, not at a simple political level. I don't understand how there can still be a hundred million people in this country who think that the president is doing a good job and who could conceive of voting for him in the fall. And I, I want to, even at a, I, I, the question I want to ask isn't about politics. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep 
question about like human behavior, how we are, who we are, how we learn, whether we ever change our minds, how we change our minds. Can you literally, with, with literally, please God, you will both live till 120, but with like a lifetime's perspective and learning and, and fighting and accomplishing things and struggling, what do we, and, and oh, and one last thing that I will say, I deeply, deeply believe on the one hand that we should be, that we shouldn't just be surrounded by people who agree with us. And I, on the one hand, am occasionally almost frustrated, like I'm sure the New Yorkers Ramamu, there probably realistically aren't many Republicans in Ramamu. There are a few, right? And, and on the one hand, I actually believe that I should be in a intellectually diverse world. And then on the other hand, there are people who would defend certain sorts of positions that I just find completely untenable and I can't even go there. And I don't know how to put this together. Thoughts well, coming? So let me suggest some ways of putting it together. Um, in a crisis like this, there really are more than two, but two very strong responses. One is to reach out, and the other one is to pull in. And when Phyllis says we have to, it's clear. I mean, in fact, you said in your lifetime, Phyllis, this was, I think there's been no event in human history in which the entire human race has experienced and know that it experienced uh, the same event. Not even the H-bomb did that. I was around when the first, when Hiroshima was bombed and I was old enough to be conscious. I was 12 years old and uh, the events around that were, became in a way my real bar mitzvah, not the uh, boilerplate one in the shul, uh, which was was boilerplate. It didn't have to be some schools. It wasn't, but mine was. So, but there's one, there's the sense of tightening up. Oh, we, whoever we is, have to take care of ourselves and nobody else cares and nobody else matters versus, oi, gewalt, we're all in this together. And not only all human beings, but all life forms are in this together. So actually, I've been, the seventh night of Pesach seemed to me where the human race was at. The whole human race, the seventh night of Pesach, there were two possibilities. So the army said, tried to say, and intended to say, hey, come on back. Uh, yeah. You'll have to work hard for those onions and garlics that you can get back here. Uh, they're perks to being slaves or serfs. Uh, and you should come back. And in fact, we're going to insist you come back. But they didn't, they, the Pharaoh didn't send the army to kill people. He didn't send, sent the army to coerce people, just like it always had. And they were stuck. Okay, that was the knowable world. That was normal. And ahead of them was this sea. And who knew whether it would split, whether they would drown. You know, I mean, why imagine a miracle was going to happen? Uh, something totally weird. And I think 
the whole situation. We can either go back to hierarchy and domination and exploitation and subjugation, or we can go forward in a much more ecological, not dominating. And that goes to the depth of religion, including Judaism. Uh, King, Lord, those are the images we still carry around in our head. And even when I talk with people, Reconstructionists and Jewish Renewal people whose theology in theory is different, they still, when push comes to shove, think of God as a dominating figure, not as the interweaving of all life. Uh, and I think unless we get to the interweaving of all life in our kishkas as well as in our brains, both, uh, that and our kishkas we now know affect our brains. Who knew? Uh, I mean, I'm not in charge even of myself. I mean, there are these million uh, microscopic beings who are affecting how I think and whether I'm sick or whether I'm well. Or, you know, so, I mean, that's ecology inside and there's the ecology outside. And I don't mean, just mean biological, but cultural and political uh, as against domination uh, politics. What does it mean to have interwoven politics? So I think we're at the, we're, that's what I mean when I say we're at the seventh day of Pesach, all of us. Uh, we really have to choose um, and it's up for grabs. So for anybody who doesn't know what Arthur means by the seventh day of Pesach, it's the day that we're commemorating the crossing of the sea. We're at the edge of the sea with uh, the Egyptian army behind us and we have this impenetrable seeming sea in front of us. Do we plunge in with the possibility we're gonna drown or do we turn around and get killed on the other side? And that's the real fear. Nigel, I wanna go back to a question that you had uh, raised kind of a, a little bit earlier, how do people change? And I think a lot about this question on a personal level. And I know for myself, change only comes when I'm up against the wall. Change is just so difficult. We're so accustomed to doing things the way that we do. And it's only when we're really up against the wall where that seventh day of this of Pesach is, where we have no choice. You can't do it this, the old way. And even though the new way is terrifying and is so much work, we, it's life and death and we move forward in some manner. So it's very interesting to me to look at, on a micro and macro level, two different ways people are responding to this. For anybody who has had either their own experience with COVID or somebody in the family or close in with COVID, we see it as life and death. We understand it. It is a hor horrific situation. For people who don't, I, I think it's quite different. And it's playing out all over the country on the micro level around, do I wear a mask or not when I'm outside? In, in our neighborhood, that we think of as a, an unbelievably progressive neighborhood, the neighborhood that US News and World Report says is one of the only places in the United States where integration has really worked. This question is being raised here on our local listserv, and it's ugly. 
people who swear that people like me are um, controlling them or trying to control them and keeping them from being free because I want them to be masked when they're outside and keep a proper distance from me. Uh, so we're seeing that all over with the groups who are coming to their state capitals or to, the, or to DC, um, pleading or screaming about opening up the country when it's still not safe to open up the country. So I'm imagining that those are people who haven't yet been touched by this as anything but a theoretical possibility that's not gonna happen for them. And for anybody who really stands in this moment, not ready to die, believing that we have life force and something to offer still, it's a very different experience. And that's not, right, that's not left and right, that's not, Republicans and Democrats. It's a different experience about where we stand at the moment. It was, um, I, I not only agree, but I want to tell you that relatively early on, I'd sent a note to somebody uh, involved in Hazan saying, oh, I think this thing's coming down the pike and I think we maybe need to pay attention to this. And this person was like, seriously, why do we need to spend time on that? Like, you know, this is very, very minor. And as chance would have it, that was somebody who within 48 hours ended up in isolation because somebody in their community got sick. And it was somebody who's great. And, and, and they and I have a great relationship. I mean, it's, it's, it's a source of amusement to us. But it is also interesting that when something is abstract, it's one thing. And when suddenly it's my community, I relate in a different way. I wanted to, I, I wanted if I may, to take this, just briefly into this whole conversation about Lagba Omer and counting the Omer, like you've been talking about Pesach, you were talking about the seventh day and having one's back to the wall and stuff. And this period from Pesach to Shavuot, Arthur, I remember you talking about as a formative experience for you, Pesach in 1967 or eight and tanks on the street in DC and understanding Pharaoh in a different way. And so there has been Pesach to, to Shavuot as an agrarian thing. The, the barley and the wheat is growing. And then there's the overlay of, of counting up to the giving of the Torah. Then there are the Kabbalists and, and a sort of psycho drama in a, in a personal way. And then along the way, Lagba Omer is kind of this minor holiday. In Israel, Hameron, barbecues, I've actually never been there, but I gather it's a fairly appalling spectacle, in fact. But anyway, um, but the story in the is that there was a plague and that it's a period of semi-mourning because there was a plague and that Lagba Omer was when the plague started to end. And as chance would have it, it's going to be Lagba Omer Monday night and Tuesday and suddenly America and parts of the world are talking about this is still real, but it may be that in certain respects we're through the worst and we're coming back to life. And my question is, how do we read Lagba Omer? How do we observe it this year? And also the way that the rabbis understand the plague as being something about the students of Rabbi Akiva didn't treat each other properly. This rift between, as it were, death and illness, which we have in one bucket, ritual life, which is in a second, and like ethical behavior that's a third. Phyllis, Arthur, thoughts, comments? Well, let me say something about the whole Omer period in the first place. 
what the rabbinic tradition did by focusing on Sinai and Torah and wiggling the dates so that they could make Shavuot into the festival of receiving uh, Torah was perhaps necessary or giving away the agricultural one because we were separate from the land uh, and severed Neverland because you were never sure when you were going to get out. So what was the point of trying to make an emotional or spiritual or, e or even political relationship with the land? But in doing that, there was a, certainly a big loss. And we're seeing the loss come hammering at us now uh, as the Jewish people and most religious traditions, except the ones we call the indigenous peoples, have lost that direct sense of relationship with the land. So what I would want to have happen is resurfacing the agricultural uh, rhythm of the Omer. Uh, the Omer is, was actually brain. <laughs> it, it wasn't chesed and gevorah. It wasn't uh, a line of Torah. It was brain. How do we resurface that without giving away the other? Uh, the other is enriching, but we lost the grain. We actually, the Shalom Center and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism and Dayenu, the new Jewish uh, climate organization together are doing an Erev Shavuot um, teaching on, uh, on Zoom uh, for about 90 minutes that we're calling from Shavuot to Sukkot, green and grow the vote. It sort of rhymes. The O is a little different in English than it is in Hebrew, but it's pretty close. Uh, so what does it mean to take that from one harvest to the other harvest, the spring to the fall harvest, in this moment of American and world and planetary history, what did it mean to take that, to move from harvest to harvest in order? Harvest we often think of as just what, um, what we grew from the past, but the whole point of a harvest is to feed the future. And Torah, in that sense, was a harvest pointing toward the future. And the uh, whole business of the Sphiros was an attempt to imagine a harvest that would point toward the future. So what does it mean for us to do that now in the midst of what's a crucial election, not only for the United States, but for the planet, for every life form on the planet? Uh, how do we grow and green, both green and grow the vote? So that's the bigger picture. Phyllis has a whole notion about one more thing, actually, for the, for the owner as a whole, because Phyllis is take on Lagba Omer, it really uh, re responds to that. When so, I let me, so let me speak that. Yeah, but wait. Phyllis, give us your take on, on Lagba Omer. Omer picture first. Time. So when I wrote Season of Our Joy, the, I kept finding that the rabbinic tradition said that the things you couldn't do during the Omer were about semi-mourning. And I looked at it and looked at it, and it didn't seem to me it was about grief one about mourning, it was about anxiety. 
Is this weed going to grow or is the weed not going to grow? Are we going to make it to Torah in the rabbinic framework or are we not going to make it to Torah? Uh, and when whenever you count to a day, you count, am I going to graduate on that day or am I not? Am I going to fail the last course and not be able to graduate? So the, the, the rules, I thought, I think, we're all about anxiety. And then Lagba Omer and Phyllis's insight into what it would have meant. Phyllis, you're up. Arthur, thank you. Phyllis, you're up. Okay, so very quickly, uh, it seemed to me that uh, agriculturally, if you can see the, the grain coming up, if you can see the barley coming up out of the ground, you know that there's gonna be food to eat. And when you know that there's gonna be food to eat, then you can plan on your future. You can plan on moving. You can plan on taking a different job. You can plan on getting married or getting unmarried, but you can't really do it unless you have some of the most basic necessities, the food to eat to go on with your life. So just listening to this conversation this morning, what I'm thinking about is this. If Lag Baomer, in one way of thinking about it, was the end of a plague, it should only be so here, right now. Yeah. Uh, and if it is, an, in another way of thinking, a sign that there's going to be food to eat, it's a turning point. And we, for us all, could be using this as the turning point now, really to do a self-reflection. What is it we've learned about ourselves that's tremendously important? We are so overwhelmed with Zoom, and in a world without Zoom, we're so overwhelmed with all of the choices that can pull us in different ways. What are the ones that nourish us? What are the ones that we spend time on but really are like empty cotton candy for us? What are the essentials? What are the essentials in our relationships? What are the ways we want to use ourselves? And whether it's the thinking specifically about what we want to take out when the plague ends, or just having that understanding about what gives life and health to us, and how do we live with that? What is it we want to do with our days? How do we number our days so that they're meaningful? Um, that's what I think we could all be doing wherever we are and in whatever state we are inside or outside to be doing to celebrate this Lagba Omer. And that would really be meaningful. Somebody wrote in the chat box about the sense of having exposure to worlds beyond their own. And last night, Arthur and I watched a movie called, it's a documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. It was, um, I was invited into it because uh, the woman who is the head of the, the spiritual direction program for the Aleph ordination program, her brother-in-law was one of the directors and the Obamas were the executive producers of this film. And it was a really amazing film for people to see into a world that many of us, we are fortunate, haven't had to know personally but we do need to know about it. It's a civil rights of the disability world and how complicated that was to reach the point we are even now. So that too is a piece of 
what I think could be an instruction for all of us. What are the worlds we've had our minds closed to because we didn't have to face before? That we need to expand our horizons to see and recognize what life is like for people who are not like us. And there are so many people who don't have a home to live in, to take sanctuary in. There are so many people who don't have the ability to store up food because there's barely enough money to have enough food for today, let alone for the unknown future. There are so many people who don't have health care. So there are so many ways that we can be looking not only to the personal, but what's true about the human condition and the condition of the non-human but living world around us. Um. Phyllis, I think that you um, actually just had the last word on behalf of both of you, because I think that we're, uh, we're at time, but I, I think that that was an amazingly inspiring way to end, truthfully. Um, I, I want to thank everybody who uh, joined us, but especially Sue and Bruce, who on the chat box explained not only that Lagba Omer is their anniversary, but that Rabbis Phyllis and Arthur married them on Lagba Omer. So I want to say happy anniversary to you, Mazel Tov, Tata and Phyllis. I want to thank Ellie and Liana and our staff for setting this up and invite everybody to join us, Andy Stern, next week. But mostly to the two of you, I just want to say a humongous thank you. I want to, I want to, like, like, like really, I mean, we, we say this fast, Ali, but really, please, God, you should live for, like, a long time. But I, we, the Talmud teaches that we, we should learn from our rabbis by seeing how they tie their shoelaces. And I really, and even in this brief conversation, I really feel that you model a certain kind of balance that I know that I aspire to and so very rarely get. And, and just starting off with a story about reading books to each other and seeing that as chavruta and so on. The balance between the personal and the professional, the balance between in here and out there, the balance between being able to care and nourish oneself, but not in a narcissistic way, but believing that we're important because what we're doing is and should be important. Um, a balance between sort of speaking and teaching and doing. And so in so many ways, I really, I thank each and both of you. I'm, as you said, in a different way, I'm sad in a way that we're not able to be in person. And there are so many things going on that aren't great. And yet, had it not been for this, we would never have done this. And I, I'm so happy and grateful to share this conversation with you. And Admeva uh, Esrim, and we should all be inspired by you and, and, and be healthy and be good. Amen. Thank you. May we be in person at, at Isabella Friedman in December for a silent meditation retreat, something we all need. Thank you so much, Nigel. Thank you. Bye, everybody.